The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Personalizing the Management of Hyperlipidemia, Addressing Unmet Needs Among High-Risk Patients with Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease with Novel Lipid-Lowering Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EPX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, a really early morning program here at American Heart. I'm Scott Wright from Mayo Clinic. I'm joined by my illustrious colleague, Peter Jones from Baylor. Peter, good morning. Thanks good for morning. coming. Good uh, morning. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks to all of you for braving the, the early morning to come out uh, uh, here the last day of the American Heart. We have a great program for you on personalizing the management of hyperlipidemia. Well, I'm going to begin with just a few background slides and then turn this over to Dr. Jones to do our first practicum. Uh, what we can know from the last 20 years has been that cholesterol management has improved in the United States, but not to the point of perfection, right? We're still seeing most patients in our practices who have significant elevations of all of the lipoproteins, whether it's total cholesterol, LDL, or even triglycerides. Uh, and HDL is reasonably well controlled, but that's more of a population thing than anything. You can see that women have higher HDL values than men. But surprisingly, women also have uh, LDLs that are higher than men. So uh, still a long way to go to treat dyslipidemia adequately, especially given the new consensus statement out about what's an optimal LDL level. And what we know is that uh, mortality rates uh, in patients who are on treatment for secondary prevention often mirror the intensity of the LDL lowering. Now, it's much easier to get the intensity of treatment by the intensity of the statin, right? Because that's available with all kinds of electronic records, whereas uh, lab values are much harder to, to define. So if we look at patients who get high-intensity statins, if we look at men or women, you can see that among all of the groups receiving treatment for dyslipidemia, those who have a high-intensity statin have much lower mortality compared to those who are either not treated with a statin or those who are on low-intensity statins, right? Uh, if you're on a moderate-intensity statin, you sort of do in between the first group, which is high-intensity treatment, and the second pairing, which is sort of no statin versus a low-intensity statin where there's not much of a difference. And this really hasn't changed over the last 20 years, that... Uh, uh, the statin, the degree of LDL lowering re really uh, determines the uh, Im reduction in events and the outcomes. And the same is true for women, if we look. Women may get a little benefit from low-intensity statin compared to men, uh, but those who are treated with the high-intensity statins do the best. I think what we can see is that uh, we really still uh, undertreat most patients who have dyslipidemia because uh, mortality rates remain too high. It might surprise you to learn that only 80% of patients in a large U.S. registry called Pinnacle were given a statin after an acute coronary syndrome. And it probably wouldn't surprise you that about half of those stopped the statin by the first year out in their follow-up appointments. And there's a large variation in clinical practice. Some practices actually had nobody getting started on a lipid-lowering drug or a statin, and others were using it, a small percent were using it 100% of the time. The same is true for patients who have FH, and FH is one of those really lethal conditions, especially if you have homozygous FH. It's underdiagnosed, uh, and uh, in fact, most of us in the room uh, who are either cardiologists or other healthcare providers have trouble diagnosing heterozygous FH. 
Uh, and about a third of cardiologists and over half of all primary care providers have never prescribed uh, the therapies really targeted for FH, and that is the uh, PCSK9 class of agents. So even in patients with FH, there's inadequate treatment of elevated LDL cholesterol. Uh, why is it so hard to treat patients for dyslipidemia? Well, um, I think prescribers genuinely have a challenge risk stratifying patients. Uh, it's not convenient or easy to pull up a website and put your patient's demographics in and come up with a 10 or 20 or 30 year risk score, is it? Unless your electronic record does it for you. Uh, they also have, there's also uncertainty about the benefit in certain patient groups, right? I get a lot of pushback from uh, general internist, Dr. Jones, you might be surprised at this, because I keep patients over 80 on statins. And the question is, is that ethical? And I say, what do you mean is it ethical? It reduces the risk of stroke. And they're like, well, yeah, but you're going to keep them alive forever. Yeah, well, I guess that might be the goal. Uh, there's also discrepancies among the guidelines, right? I mean, you know, the medical communities have to have a little controversy, so we just publish guidelines and we disagree with one another. It's also clinical inertia. You know, it's the, it's uh, how many issues and, and how many things can you juggle at once, right? I mean, I uh, even uh, someone like me who has talked about lipids for his entire career has trouble sometimes getting everyone treated because patients come in and you're dealing with their life-threatening issues and their other issues and dealing with some of their social issues, and then uh, the lipids uh, get forgot about because they're here to talk about aortic stenosis or something, but we shouldn't be forgetting about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not, not clear if you're a specialist like me if you should be doing it or if you should send them back to the primary care provider. I teach our fellows all the time not to burden the primary care providers to just get the patient started because uh, when they come to us, it's expected that we do it. And, of course, with the economics the way they are in healthcare, there's just limited time to discuss. Uh, there's also patient factors. Patients read a lot now. Uh, every time I prescribe a statin, uh, patients are now pushing back. What are the side effects? Am I likely to get myalgias uh, and, and problems like that? Uh, patients also overestimate their vitality and underestimate their personal risks of a recurrent cardiovascular event. I like to say that among all species, we humans are the best at, at self-denial, right? Uh, we, we just uh, ignore our own health issues and our own uh, issues to a great extent. Uh, and I think uh, a couple of iterations ago, the guidelines went away from targeting LDL values. Thankfully, they're back now, but because of that, cholesterol is measured less, and so people just really don't know what their cholesterol values are. If you ask a patient today, what was your last cholesterol? They can't remember. Ten years ago, it was different. They really knew that. And sometimes they're just unaware of why the medicines are prescribed. They just trust us to do it. All right, well, let's turn it over to Dr. Jones now, who's going to talk about uh, some unmet needs in managing dyslipidemia. Peter? Scott, thank you very much. Yeah, my job is to sort of set up what's coming next with Scott's lecture, but uh, I'd like to address some of these uh, uh, unmet needs. And we're going to start with actually the um, patient that was you were asked the question about, which is uh, Anne, who's a 44-year-old woman of European and South Asian descent. You see over here her, you're seeing her for the first time, so you're getting this, uh, this history on her. So she had a TIA three years ago, and it was at a time when her blood pressure was high and it was not adequately treated. But now it is reasonable. But her LDL is 200. And the family history of coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease, or whether there's FH in the family or whether she has FH, is unclear. And her current medications, amazingly, she's taking icosapentethyl, but only one gram a day, Losartan HCT, and aspirin. And the problem is, and the reason her LDL is still 200 and probably why her doctor sort of gave her this IPE, is because she says she's statin intolerant. 
She really had a difficult time. The doctor told her she needed to take high-intensity statin, resuvastatin 40, and she couldn't tolerate it. Well, apparently, that was that. And um, so here she shows up on, uh, in, in your office. You ask her about this LDL of 200, and she said, well, yeah, he sort of said there might be a genetic reason for that, and all, but nothing was really followed up and done. Okay? So that's where we are with, uh, with, with Ann. So the question is, you know, is she high risk? Is she even more than that, or very high risk? Well, in, in 2018, as you know, the AHA, ACC cholesterol guidelines sort of said, who is high risk for future cardiovascular disease event? Well, of course, it's anybody who has a personal history of cardiovascular disease, whether that be uh, ACS, MI, ischemic stroke, TIA, PAD, or a history of an intervention like a bypass or a PCI. Of course, it could be, of course, any patient who has a genetic reason for a high LDL over 190. Okay, so you consider them heterozygote FH. And then, of course, you can, depending on whether they're a pooled cohort equation, if they're not, if their primary prevention over 40 years old, if their pooled cohort equation is scores greater than 20%, they would be considered at high risk for a future cardiovascular disease event. So obviously our patient sort of tends to fit in, in one and two, uh, most likely for a high risk of uh, a future event. See if I can get it to move to the next. There we go. And of course, the 2018 guidelines helped us a little bit in defining high risk and even very high risk. And some guidelines have even gone to the extreme risk by looking at enhanced risk factors. So these are things that, in addition to the way we just described them as having established cardiovascular disease or FH, they have a family history of premature cardiovascular disease. They don't necessarily have to have FH, but they can have a polygenic cause for the hypercholesterolemia, 160 to 190. They have the metabolic syndrome. We all know what that is. They've got to have uh, three out of five of the characteristics of increased waist circumference, triglycerides more than 150, elevated blood pressure, high glucose, or a low HDL less than 40 in men or less than 50 in women. CKD, that would be an EGFR between 15 and 60. Chronic inflammatory conditions, of course, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, HIV are all considered chronic inflammatory conditions. For women, important would be premature menopause or any pregnancy-related problem, such as eclampsia, preeclampsia, or gestational diabetes. And last, there are some high-risk ethnicities, of which, and a highlight here, is South Asian ancestry. So if you have one or more of these enhancing risk factors, it moves you along the risk category. It shifts you up along the risk categories. I think all of you are familiar with that. Well, of course, if you take a look at the, uh, the 2018 uh, HACC guidelines, you know, the risk scoring is the pool cohort equation. You use that primarily for your uh, primary prevention patients. Based on your scoring and your situation and the risk of the patient, there were LDL goals that were set up or thresholds that you were trying to, uh, to, to accomplish. Most of it for moderate risk or high risk was based on the intensity of the statin. You were trying to give the appropriate intensity of the statin to lower your LDL cholesterol at least 30 to 50% if you were moderate primary prevention risk, high risk more than 50% from baseline. And if you were very high risk, you were supposed to get below the threshold of 70 milligrams per deciliter on LDL or less than 100 on non-HDL. The therapies were supposed to be evidence-based, and that would be statins, ezetimibe, and the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. The therapies that were not really discussed because 
the guidelines didn't have them available at the time would be vampidoic acid and the uh, small interfering RNA to PCSK9 and glycerin. Uh, they didn't really discuss either the um, drugs that are orphan drugs for homozygote FH, which were lomidopide or even ikimab. Of course, the ESC has their own, EAS have their own guidelines that came out a year later. Their um, risk scoring uses the score, which is not really a composite of fatal and non-fatal event. It's primarily fatal cardiovascular disease. I think the ESC and EAS just recently came up with a different scoring thing. It's called Score D, which does include non-fatal uh, uh, cardiovascular events. But they're much more specific about their uh, LDL goals, not necessarily just trying to achieve a a reduction from baseline of at least 50% in high and very high risk. They were very specific in thresholds of getting less than 70 if you're high risk and less than 55 milligrams per deciliter in LDL if you're very high risk. Again, they also discussed the evidence-based drugs, statins, and zetamib and PCSK9 inhibitors. And again, they did very little to discuss some of the uh, therapies that were not available at the time. They did discuss some of the future therapies. Now, you know, look at it, uh, and this was just, uh, Scott mentioned this, I think you saw a couple months ago, uh, the ACC came out with their expert consensus decision pathway, and this was to uh, help you use non-statin drugs to achieve uh, optimal LDL cholesterol levels, and the treatment algorithms were still based on the groups that the, uh, the ACCAHA came up with in primary prevention and secondary prevention. So your primary prevention patients are obviously those that would be considered for additional non-statin drug would be those with, with FH, or severe hypercholesterolemia, LDLs more than 190. Could be adults with diabetes with LDLs less than 190, and it could be if, you're, if your risk status was high enough, potentially uh, primary prevention without diabetes, but LDLs between 70 and 190. Of course, the secondary prevention, they did de describe patients who could be high risk and not high risk, with established cardiovascular disease. And particularly in, in relationship to Anne, it would be uh, those who are very high risk and potentially have FH, and those who are not very high risk but do have an LDL still above 190 milligrams per deciliter. So though the expert consensus decision pathway was based on the information that we know that's beneficial for reducing cardiovascular disease, not just LDL cholesterol, but cardiovascular disease. And when you look at this, obviously lifestyle risk factor control is important, weight reduction, physical activity, appropriate diet, pattern, smoking cessation. Statins are clearly indicated by clinical trials, ezetimibe and PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. Specialty medications, which don't have a lot of outcomes yet, and we'll talk about what, uh, what those are, are non-statin drugs that can lower LDL cholesterol, but don't necessarily have the outcomes that the other uh, uh, three drugs are there. And then finally, there never will be an, an outcomes trial with apheresis, but it is an option for some patients. Uh, but there is plenty of data to suggest that in patients treated with apheresis compared to controls that are not, there are much better outcomes lowering lipids, whether it be LP little a or LDL cholesterol, by using uh, uh, LDL apheresis. So in the expert consensus decision pathway, obviously as complicated as it can be, and I, hopefully most of you have seen this, and I, I'm not going to read everything to you, but the question is, in patients who are uh, uh, like Anne, who have ASCVD and an LDL more than 190, the question is, if I can get this to show up, you know, do they have a, a statin? Did they get greater than uh, high-intensity statin? Did they get greater than 50%? lowering in their LDL, and is their LDL less than 70 milligrams per deciliter? If the answer is yes, then you move all the way down to the bottom and you go just 
adhere, stay with it, and follow them. Well, of course, Anne is not that. She couldn't tolerate a statin, so it goes to no. What do you do next? Well, maximize lifestyle therapy. Consider what you do in managing statin-associated side effects, which for most patients is called SAMS, statin-associated muscle symptoms. And then you consider how you can or change statin therapy, and we'll talk about that. If they're on moderate intensity, they need to go to high-intensity statin to see if you can get more than 50% lowering or less than 70 on LDL. If you're still no, then you start considering what are your add-on non-statin drugs. And based on the clinical evidence, they have three steps to consider here, which would be consider adding ezetimibe first or a PCSK9 or both. The next would be, because of the evidence base, then the next would be consider bempedoic acid alone, could be the fixed-dose combination with ezetimibe, or in glycerin. And then your last third choice, uh, depending on the situation, why their LDL is above 190, particularly if you think it's a compound heterozygote or, or a homozygote, would be to consider apheresis under the care of a lipid specialist. And then, of course, did you, with all of that, add on, did you get less than 70? Then the answer is yes, then you continue them on with therapy. If the answer is no, then you definitely need to refer them to a lipid specialist because probably they may need to consider the possibility of other therapies, including uh, apheresis. And here's the, you know, an example of what Anne would probably fit in. And this is uh, looking at patients between LDLs between 100 and 200, adding on evidence-based treatments from what we've learned over the past, uh, you know, 30 uh, years. You know, using statins alone, most of it was moderate-intensity statins. You could move this group from 100 to 200 down, okay? So you get 30%, 40% lowering in, in LDL. Then we came to the point of high-intensity versus moderate or low-intensity statin. We had outcomes in that, so that it proves that, yes, you can move the bar a little bit more, lower the LDL, and you get uh, 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 better outcomes. Then you added zetamibe, you could further lower it. Now you're starting to see that this group's getting down to, uh, you know, sort of reasonable LDLs in this range. And then finally with, uh, with evolocumab and, uh, and alirocumab with the PCSK9 monoclonal antibody outcome data, if you added that on, finally you could get all of these patients to LDLs below 50 milligrams per deciliter. So this is the evidence-based approach to, to managing this. So this will be discussed a little bit more by, uh, by Scott, but just want to you know, show you again oral medications that we have. We have statins, obviously, up to 60% at high-intensity statins as single drugs, ezetimibe 20%, bepidoic acid about 20%. The fixed-dose combination of the two, by the way, can get you close to 40% uh, lowering in LDL. Icosapendethyl, which is approved to use to reduce cardiovascular events in patients who are high-risk, very high-risk, doesn't really lower LDL much. At, at best, you might get uh, 5%. The injectable medications, of course, the monoclonal antibodies, can give you 50 to 60% lowering in LDL, evolocumab and alirocumab. Of course, in glycerin, which was improved as a small interfering RNA against PCSK9, can also lower it 50 to 60%. Then as you look at what the expert consensus decision pathway would show you, going with ezetimibe and a statin, 65%, statin plus PCSK9, 75%, and if you were to use all three, you can get an 85% reduction in LDL from baseline, which for a lot of patients could be get them below 70, certainly, and for some, even below 55 milligrams per deciliter. Let me just tell you that uh, the question, 
about using combination therapies is for patients who may have difficulty tolerating statins. And this is an example of somebody with a moderate-intensity statin plus ezetimibe is actually more effective and better tolerated than high-intensity statin. So this was a study out of South Korea looking at three-point MACE over three years. And actually, the combination group of a moderate-intensity statin plus ezetimibe actually had lower event rates than those who were just in high-intensity statin alone. The LDL was less than 70 and more patients with that combination of ezetimibe and moderate intensity than high-intensity statin, and that the discontinuation rate was lower, probably better tolerated for most of the patients with moderate-intensity statin than high-intensity statin. So keeping that in mind, you know, we used to have a, a fixed-dose combination of a statin and ezetimibe. Most of you may have remembered that. Given as one tablet is actually not surprising to you, associated with better adherence, and as a result lower cardiovascular disease event rates. And this was a study that came out of the Lombardy region of, uh, of, of Italy. So actually, the patients who took the fixed-dose combination tended to, to tolerate the, the medication better. They were more adherent, and probably, therefore, their LDL was lower more time than the, than the other group. And so the single-tablet therapy is obviously a pretty good, uh, pretty good option. But unfortunately, we don't have that fixed-dose combination uh, uh, available to us. But it is, it is important. You know, our patient has statin-associated uh, side effects, and for her, it's muscle, which is the most common. So the question is, what are you supposed to do with this? Well, the expert consensus decision pathway tells us, you know, try to do the best you can in working with these patients, although there's extremely rare cases of rhabdomyolysis or even autoimmune uh, rhabdo associated with uh, statin use. Most of the patients just have uh, the muscle-associated side effects, and what they tell you to do is it really try to use more than one statin, which Anne apparently tried high-intensity statin and stopped and nothing else was done. Try at least two or more statins. Uh, try them at uh, lower doses. Um, and, you know, even try different uh, dosing schedules. You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, once a week. You know, those kind of things are all potentially options that you can uh, do. By the way, it is amazing how the patients, and this is something you probably all know about the nocebo effect, but telling them that you can give them a statin that's not 40 milligrams, not 10 milligrams, not 5 milligrams, but you know there is a statin out there that's 1 and 2 milligrams called patavastatin. It's amazing how suddenly they seem to do okay with 2 milligrams of, of a statin. They couldn't tolerate 5 or 10 or whatever. So it's a, amazing how that, uh, that sort of works out. But the bottom line is, depending on the patient's uh, risk status with statin-associated muscle symptoms, whatever statin they can tolerate even if the maximally tolerated is zero, then you've got your high-risk groups listed here. And what you do is consider it ZMI, PCSK9, you can do bempedoic acid and glycerin, or if they're homozygote FH, the orphan drug indication for uh, evanicumab, that's, uh, that's at the top. But most of these are going to end up being ezetimibe or PCSK9 inhibitors with the possibility of using bempedoic acid alone or in combination, a fixed-dose combination with ezetimibe as you move through these risk categories for statin-associated uh, muscle symptoms. I'll just tell you that I uh, don't want to go through this too much, don't have a, a lot of time, but I think most of you know in, in trials of, of uh, N of 1, we've sort of come up with this idea of the nocebo effect. The Samson and the statin-wise trials tend to show that patients who've had a history of statin intolerance, that if you give them placebo-controlled uh, trials of statins and rotate them between statin and placebo, and they don't know what they're taking, they end up similarly having the same number of side effects on the placebo as they do taking the statin. There was even uh, uh, one 
uh, trial where they actually gave no therapy. So one of the trials was an empty bottle for a month. So they gave a statin, placebo, and an empty bottle. They didn't know the statin or placebo. They didn't know the empty bottle. And interestingly, some patients had symptoms even when they were taking nothing. So the symptoms didn't go away when they went to the empty bottle. So it's, it's just a very interesting issue on in how these patients perceive some of their problems. Is it real or not? It doesn't matter. The patient thinks it's real. It's up to us to decide what we can get them to, uh, to tolerate. Most of the patients in these clinical trials, once they figured out that their, sta- that their symptoms happened, whether they were taking the real drug or not, decided, shoot, I'm just going to take the statin. I think I need it when the doctor talked to them. So we're going to go back to our patient again and decide what to do with her, right? Okay, so... Here's where she is. We don't really know yet about her uh, situation with FH or not. She is intolerant to resuvastatin-40. So what are you going to do for this high-risk patient to get her LDL down? Well, what you'd like to do is try and see if you can talk her into getting on a statin, okay? So it would be, let's try a statin. Let's try a lower dose, okay? So we switched to statin, gave her a different name. So it's now a torvastatin, not resuva. And instead of 40, it's only 10, and guess what? She's tolerating it for six weeks after the discussion of how, how important it is for her to, to do it. And uh, you see her LDL went down about 35% or so, so it's now down to about 130. Um, you know, obviously she needs to be half of that to get her uh, LDL to optimal levels. And so the next steps are, what would you do based on the expert consensus decision pathway? Well, you could certainly try zetamibe, or you could try the fixed-dose combination. That would get you... 20 to 40% lowering, but she obviously needs at least another 50% lowering. So the question is, would you uh, add ezetimibe or just go straight to a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody? She probably needs to take that 50 to 60% drop, and probably the monoclonal antibody would be what she would, uh, would add. I would probably also, <laughs> Scott, uh, I think her doc was tried to use icosapentethyl because it's supposed to be used with maximally tolerated statin in patients with established heart disease, but it's four grams a day when you use it, not one. Uh, you might want to sort of either decide not to use it and move to more intensive LDL lowering and at least move one medicine away as you start adding new ones in, but I'd probably get rid of that EPA, either you increase the dose or you just discontinue it and move towards your intensive LDL lowering is the way I would look at it. All right, I think I'm done with my part. Now we get to the real good part. Oh, uh, we Scott. just had the good part. Thanks, Peter. Uh, that was a great overview Thanks. and very typical case that we see. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about a second patient. This is a male who's 74, Gabriel. He's Mexican-American uh, living in Houston near Peter. He's had type 2 diabetes for about 12 years. His A1C is pretty good. It's 7.1%. But he has had some end organ damage, has had a neuropathy from his diabetes of only 12 years, diagnosed for 12 years, obviously probably longer. He's had a myocardial infarction. He's had percutaneous revascularization three years ago. His ejection fraction is reduced because he's had heart failure now. And uh, he's also got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So uh, he's got sort of a triple whammy from all of this, right? Heart disease, uh, diabetic complications, and uh, liver disease. His blood pressure is good, 118 over 71. His LDL is 170. His potassium's fine. Uh, and he's on a lot of medications. He has very good uh, coverage, so he can afford anything that we want to prescribe for him, right? He's on a mineral corticoid drug. He's on uh, metformin. He's on uh, an SGLT2 drug. 
Uh, he's on clopidogrel and aspirin, now three years out from his PCI, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's on furosemide a bit, and uh, despite being on an SGLT2, he still needs a diuretic, and he's on really high dose of Torva and Zetia 10. And he comes in for a routine quarterly follow-up visit, and he's highly motivated to reduce the risk of another MI. I suspect Gabriel has a new grandchild, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are his risks, right? What what makes him at high risk? Well, uh, a lot of things can elevate risks in these patients. So having elevated triglycerides, great work by Mike Miller many years ago uh, from some of the statin studies, uh, showed that any triglyceride value of, say, greater than 140 or 150 is a risk enhancer. Uh, and uh, certainly at 175, it's certainly an elevated risk. Uh, Paul Richter's work uh, with high-sensitivity CRP has convinced us that uh, a CRP of two or more is a risk marker. I remember at AHA many years ago, Paul showing data on this, uh, and it has really held, uh, stood for the test of time. Elevated lipoprotein A. How many of you see patients with an elevated lipoprotein A? I know Elliot does in the audience there, but many of you, yeah. So any lipoprotein A elevation above probably 50 is a risk enhancer, certainly higher than 125 really is. Uh, and an elevated ApoB, right? That tracks right along with LDL uh, to go right there. So, uh, and if he has peripheral arterial disease, so an ABI of less than 0.9. So by the new consensus statement, the guidelines, who's at very high risk? Let's go from high to very high risk. So it's patients who have had, you know, uh, two of these major events, right? Uh, whether it's a recent ACS, a history of MI, a revascularization, PAD, claudication, or an ischemic stroke, or someone who's had one of these events and then two of these risk enhancers like type 2 diabetes, heterozygous FH, an elevated lipoprotein panel despite aggressive therapy, et cetera. And I think if we look at Gabriel, we can see that he hits all of these, right? Uh, Peter showed this slide uh, about FH. It's very common. Uh, we see a lot of it in our practice. I tell our fellows, if you see someone with an LDL of 200 or more, they've got FH until proven otherwise, right? Now, it could be an autosomal dominant dyslipidemia, uh, but it's practically the same thing. They're at risk, and they have events, and so we need to treat it. Uh, Homozygous FH is quite rare, and most of us don't see that in our practices. Uh, We can do a lot to improve lipid control in the U.S., right, or frankly globally, whether it's uh, adding uh, second oral agents or three oral agents or adding uh, the monoclonal antibodies or even uh, inclisiran, a new small interfering RNA. Now, the important point about this slide that I put you, I want to just show you is if your patient's at very high risk, the target LDL is 55. And so to get there, it's going to take polypharmacy for dyslipidemia, right? There's just so few patients who can get there on a statin or statin plus Zetia alone. And so you're going to need to likely go to a monoclonal antibody or to inclisiran or to the combination of bimpipidoic acid with azetamide plus a statin, and then you still may need to have an injectable therapy. How do the uh, new therapies that target PCSK9 work? Well, this is one of the great stories in the last 20 years in lipids, isn't it, about uh, uh, these, uh, these agents. Uh, what we know is that the protein PCSK9 is part of a, of a recycling process for removing the LDL receptor from the liver. So anytime that LDL and PCSK9 bind together inside the LDL receptor on the liver surface, as that is then absorbed into the hepatocyte, there's a kill signal given to destroy that receptor. And if the LDL binds without PCSK9, 
that receptor is recycled back to the surface. So any therapy which lowers PCSK9, like the monoclonal antibodies, which basically bind almost all of it in plasma and eliminate almost all of it from circulation, you have an upregulation, so to speak, of the receptor on the liver surface because you're just constantly bringing those receptors back out. The body's producing new receptors and the old receptors just continue back out to the surface. So by a surface area standpoint, you have more removal of LDL and hence you lower LDL and plasma. Now, enclisiran is not a monoclonal antibody, but instead it's a small interfering RNA, and it binds to the ASGPR receptor on the hepatocyte through its galnec carbohydrate moiety on the tip of this 23 amino acid structure, which takes it right to the liver, and there it's brought in, and the two strands, the sense and antisense strand of the RNA separate, and then the antisense strand works in the risk complex, the RNA-inducing silencing complex, in the hepatocyte to block the transcription of the message RNA for PCSK9. So it reduces the synthesis of endogenous PCSK9 by 60 to 65%. So a little different than a monoclonal, which binds all circulating PCSK9 uh, everywhere. The end result is about a 50% reduction in LDL uh, from using enclisiran. Uh, so here's the mechanisms of action of what I just described. Here you can see graphically what's happening with the monoclonals. They do an amazing job of binding PCSK9, and then the receptor comes right back out. And then here's an example of what's happening with enclisiran, uh, how it's taken up by the ASGPR receptor on the surface of the liver because of the galnec carbohydrate attached to the, to the tip of it. And that delivers the drug right to the organ of interest, right? It's really a breakthrough therapy, I think, and a concept, more than a breakthrough in therapy, but a breakthrough concept that you can target now appropriate organs with agents and drugs that will improve either uh, function, improve longevity, or improve a disease state. And it's not just uh, lipids that we see this with. It's also now with transthyretin amyloidosis. Now, there is outcome data, or I should say there are outcome data, right? Uh, with the monoclonals. Uh, two large outcome studies were done, the Fourier trial with evolocumab and the Odyssey outcomes trial with alirocumab. Uh, both showed very robust reductions in LDL. Now, to get enrolled in these trials, which enrolled patients largely who were post-ACS, you had to be on maximally tolerated statins, whether it was 40 or 80 of Atorva or 20 or 40 of Resuva. Uh, and you, so baseline lipids were reasonably well controlled, about 90 in this population of patients. Not ideal, not at 70, which was the target at the time of the enrollment for most of these patients, but I pretty good at 90. And then with treatment with a monoclonal, you can see with evolocumab, they brought the mean LDL way down to under 40 milligrams per deciliter. And with alirocumab, it was brought down initially to about 40, 45 milligrams per deciliter. And then over time, it sort of slipped back up into the low 50s and uh, some of them into the upper 60s. But again, pretty robust reductions in LDL, about a 40 milligram to 50 milligram LDL delta or reduction with alirocumab and uh, even more with evolocumab, probably close to 60 milligrams of LDL reduction or 59% reduction with evolocumab and 61% reduction with uh, alirocumab. Now, how does enclisiran stack up against that? Well, this is data that we published in JAK a few years ago and presented at uh, uh, ACC a couple of years ago as a late-breaking trial. Uh, enclisiran is a uh, given only twice a year, so it's an injection every six months, typically, uh, with one exception, which is on the first year, a patient gets a three-month booster dose. Uh, and you, we saw a 52 or so percent reduction in Orion 10 uh, in uh, averaged LDL versus placebo. 
at 510 days and a mean reduction across the area under the curve reduction is similarly. And with Orion 11, about a 50% reduction in LDL at day 510, which was the co-primary endpoint of both of these trials. Now, Orion 10 enrolled patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease like both of our patients. Orion 11, 80% or so of the patients were ASCVD, and about 15 to 20% had risk factor equivalents, which is why the LDL values were a little different. This is a slide that I asked to, to put in from the Fourier uh, analysis, which I think speaks uh, volumes about why we should treat patients to very low LDL levels. And if you look at the LDL cholesterol four weeks after randomization in the Fourier trial, now these are all high-risk or very high-risk patients because they've had ACS, most of them have had revascularization, they've had elevated lipids, and as you know, about a third to 40% were diabetic and the same number with hypertension, okay, so very high risk. And what we saw or what the investigators demonstrated, and we can see today from the publication, is that reducing the LDL to as low a value as possible was associated with lower event rates. So if you start at four weeks with an LDL that's, say, four millimoles per uh, liter, or four times 40, 160, that's pretty high, a lot of event rates. But if you get it down to 0.2 or 0.3, so on target LDLs of 20 to 40, there was a 12% event rate in the primary endpoint, so a large reduction. So there was a bit of an inflection around an LDL of 70, uh, which I'm not surprised because we saw that with Improve It, right? Going from 70 to 55 was, uh, was about a 1% to 1.5% absolute risk reduction. In the secondary endpoint, it was almost a linear drop uh, from 12% down to 8 by taking LDLs to previously unchartered territory or extremely low levels. Now, they followed this up with a presentation uh, later at ESC and then a publication called the Fourier-Ole trial, which looked at maintaining uh, LDL levels for eight years. So this is the open-label extension. That's how the OLE comes about. And you can see that uh, patients who were on placebo in the Fourier trial who agreed to switch to open-label treatment had very low reductions in LDL, mirroring those who had been on evolocumab since day one. And you can see that they had extremely low event rates. Now, those who were on placebo initially and then got open-label treatment had higher event rates than those who were on evolocumab the entire time, showing that the several years of time that they were on placebo did have an effect at raising their event rates to the extent that... Uh, they had higher event rates despite then switching to treatment later on. So I think the lesson here is uh, that if you're going to treat someone at very high risk to an extremely low LDL post-ACS, start it in hospital or at the time of hospital discharge. Don't wait six months. Don't give them six more months to prove that lifestyle and diet is just another natural history study of failed uh, lipid management. Start them early because uh, events happen and uh, they will see more reductions if they're treated more aggressively. And that's basically what I just showed you here. All right, and the long-term safety was uh, present in those who were on this open-label extension for a long period of time. Serious AEs, muscle-related events were extremely low. You can see that new onset diabetes did not go up. There was no additional new diabetic cases in those who were switched to open-label extension. Hemorrhagic stroke rates were exceedingly low. Now, why is this important? Well, we've had a lot of concerns over the years that taking LDL to extremely low levels might raise one's stroke risks, and I think now we can see that those rates are just not there. It's just really an uh, rarely encountered, if not extremely rarely encountered, uh, cardiovascular endpoint.
So does treatment with a PCSK9 altering drug reduce three-point MACE, which is death, reinfarction, and non-fatal stroke? And the answer is yes with the monoclonals. Well, well proven with the Odyssey outcomes and Fourier trial. You can see the average risk reductions are a little less than 2%, so the number needed to treat is higher than 50, but less than 90. Uh, and the relative risk reduction, depending on which trial you look at, ranges 14 to 20%. Now, with Enclisiran, uh, the answer is not yet. We don't have the data yet because the Orion 4 trial continues to enroll patients and will follow them for a fixed amount of time. So it will be several years before Enclisiran has cardiovascular endpoint data. But we did publish a follow-up paper uh, from our phase three lipid-lowering studies with Enclisiran, showing that patients who were randomized in Orion 9, 10, or 11 to Enclisiran versus placebo showed, uh, or there was an association of fewer events, of fewer major adverse cardiovascular events, which mirrors the MACE endpoints of large clinical trials. So about a 25 to 26% reduction in MACE associated with randomization to Enclisiran. Now, this, these three trials were not powered for endpoint numbers. Uh, they were not designed to look at hard endpoints, but we did collect data from the uh, case report forms. And I think this is a very interesting observation, reassuring us of the safety of this class of therapy in Clisiran. And I think further confirming that the LDL hypothesis is, is indeed correct, that lowering LDL reduces major adverse cardiovascular events. Now, uh, Dr. Jones earlier showed data from uh, another slide. This is a challenging one, which looks at the differences of how much we can lower uh, non-HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and ApoB after treatment. You can see that there are robust reductions in LDL with evolocumab, alirocumab, and enclisiran, uh, much more potent than with oral therapies, ezetimibe and bimpopidoic acid. Non-HDL cholesterol is lowered comparably across those uh, therapies that are injectable and comparably across the oral therapies, but the injectables meet the orals every time. And then ApoB is also potently reduced if you're an ApoB advocate. There's also evidence now that targeting um, uh, lipids with a PCSK9 may reduce coronary artery plaque. Uh, there's the Pac-Man AMI trial, the Glackoff trial, uh, both of which showed some reductions in atheroma volume. Uh, again, I don't put a lot of uh, emphasis on this when I talk about these agents because I think the hard endpoints and the outcomes trials have much better data than what we're seeing with plaque, but at least the plaque is moving in the right direction in these studies. Uh, what are the most frequent side effects or adverse events uh, with therapies? With alirocumab, uh, injection site reactions were about 2% higher compared to placebo. The rates of influenza were maybe a percent higher. With evolocumab, you can see a slightly higher rate of nasopharyngitis and upper respiratory tract infections. Uh, influenza, the same 1% uh, increase observed with alirocumab. Uh, interestingly, back pain, hard to know whether that's related to the injection or whether it's just uh, uh, the population studied and injection site reactions were about 5 to 6% between placebo and evolocumab. With enclisiran, uh, injection site reactions were about 8%, comparable to what was seen with uh, alirocumab, a little more than what was seen with evolocumab. Most of these are uh, painless and just are pruritic and have a little bit of redness and they go away. 
we have not heard, at least to date in the patients that have been studied, uh, that patients who had one injection site reaction gets another. And I can't speak for the monoclonals, but I suspect it's the same. Arthralgias were about the same. And we, sh we reported in one of our Jack papers and in the package insert, a little higher rate of nasopharyngitis with enclisiran versus placebo, again, what was seen with the other uh, PCSK9 agents. Now, the monoclonals require uh, frequent administration. Um, most patients are taking them every two weeks. Uh, a few will take them once a month. Uh, it's a subcutaneous injection. Uh, so it's a shot every two weeks or 26 injections a year. And uh, thankfully, the insurance market has now started covering these much better than they did at the time of launches of both of these products. Enclisiran is a very small subcutaneous injection. I describe it as akin to getting a flu shot. It's about one and a half cc's, and it's given subcutaneously every six months, with the exception of the first year, a starter booster at three months after the initial coverage. And you can, that most of the major insurance uh, providers in the U.S. are now covering it as well, and Medicare has very good coverage if you meet uh, the appropriate uh, label for using it. All right, so... We'll go back to our case now. We have Gabriel, who's tw 12 years a diabetic. Uh, as you know, he's had uh, several cardiac issues, a myocardial infarction, PCI with revascularization. Uh, he's got heart failure, HEFREF. He's got chronic kidney disease. He's got well-controlled hypertension. And despite being on all of the great and uh, modern evidence-based therapies, his LDL remains at 170, and he's back to see you. So uh, I think we all would agree that he needs to have a lower LDL. And I think the decision was made for him to switch out a Torva to Resuva to maybe get an extra 5% or 6 milligrams uh, per deciliter reduction in his LDL. And he opted to try Enclisiran uh, every six months uh, just to try to simplify his life a little bit away from having to take an injection every uh, two weeks. One year later, he's back, and his LDL is now 80. So he's gotten down from uh, that high LDL down to 80. He's compliant with all of his medications. Um, what about adding bimpopidoic acid and icosapentethyl? Is this the patient that we would want to do that uh, to? And uh, he's also tired of driving in. I guess he lives... Uh, about an hour and a half from the office, and he's asking, is there a better place to get enclisiran, and can he get it closer to home? And uh, Peter, I think uh, that's one option we have for patients is they can be referred to an infusion center, right? What about imipopidoic and icosapentethyl, all right? What about that? Would you do that in this guy to get him down further, or would you just switch him to evolocumab? No, I, I think he does need a, a definite further reduction. The question is, how, how much more complicated do you want to make this? And if you're looking at trying to get his LDL down even lower than, than 80, you could offer, again, with his complicated medic medicine regimen, switch the, the zetamibe to a fixed-dose combination with bimvidoic acid. So you switch one pill out for another. You might get another 20% lowering in his LDL. You get him below 70 milligrams per deciliter, still staying with no change in his pill count. That would work. You know, trying to use icosapentethyl... You know, and these are one of the questions we, we got asked here about, you know, what, what does it really do? Well, it, it lowers cardiovascular events in high-risk patients who are on maximally tolerated statin. Um, so he's but, it definitely do it, but it doesn't do it with, with lipid. He's somebody I would put on it, but not for the lipid effect. But it wouldn't be for a lipid effect. So it would be something you'd have to discuss separate from the lipid effect, but you want to optimally treat his LDL first, and then you could discuss about using it. But the, the mechanism of action is still unclear, but it's probably not through altering lipoproteins per se, but it's probably through anti-inflammatory and 
phospholipids and a variety of other mechanisms that are not easy for us to actually test for and follow and, and understand. But the first goal would be to see if he's willing to make this medication switch to get lower on his LDL, I think. And I think it's important to point out within Clisaram, we put this slide in, uh, with alirocumab and evolocumab, you give a prescription, right? Patients go to the pharmacy, they have coverage or they don't, they take it, they take it home, they give it. With Clisaran, you have to give it in a healthcare provider office. So you either administer it to your office and you can buy the drug from one of the wholesalers that they use and buy it and you have your buy and bill where you bill for it and then uh, get paid or you can refer them to an injection or infusion center. And I know in some of the patients I've heard stories about, those on Medicare, uh, the out-of-pocket costs are pretty low if they have a good uh, co- they have a good secondary insurance along with Medicare. Many of them, for example, in our Scottsdale, Arizona region, I understand are paying about $400 a year out-of-pocket for the medication, which is a pretty low copay uh, out-of-pocket. Or you can use a specialty pharmacy within office administration. So those are all three options. But in Clisaran, it's very different than evolocumab and alirocumab because you just can't do a prescription. It takes a little bit of an effort uh, to get it going, but it's a very easy process. How about other questions? Let's stop here and do some other questions. Yeah, there are, there are some, some questions from our audience. Uh, and some of you are online and, uh, and some here in the room. But it's come up uh, in, in at least four of the, the questions relate to what you explained um, briefly as a risk-enhancing factor, which is LP little a. Neither one of our patients had LP little a values. Do you measure LP little a on all your patients or just your high-risk patients, or what's your strategy? Well, that's a great question. I get this question a lot when I speak at meetings. I'm sure all of you get this, too, in your practice. What I do is if I have a patient who's on a decent dose of a statin, you know, 20 or 40 of uh, Resuva or 40 or 80 of Atorva, and their LDL isn't dropping, I immediately measure a lipoprotein A because many, many of those case patients will have elevated lipoprotein A, and it's just keeping that LDL from dropping like it should. Uh, if I have someone who's young or has a family history where everybody has heart disease, everybody's had revascularization or PAD or some issue, then I'll measure lipoprotein A. So I don't measure it in all, but probably in a third to a half of the patients, I'm, I tend to order it because uh, what we'll discover is that uh, more people have elevated lipoprotein A's than we ever imagined. And, and I have to smile at this because when my own mother had a myocardial infarction, her physician or internist uh, measured a lipoprotein A and hers was elevated. So I immediately went and measured mine, and thankfully mine was not. Uh, but it's an important risk enhancer. And I think we're on the threshold, frankly, of knowing if treating an elevated lipoprotein A can reduce risks f- even further than we have originally thought. And we'll have those answers in just a few years with the studies. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty easy to measure. So I think in patients that you're looking at high risk or, or very high risk or premature family history, you're trying to look at a reason for why they may have that premature family history. I think measuring under those circumstances, it's very reasonable to do. The question is, if, you, if it's elevated, the patient says, okay, now what? Well, right now we don't know what. But hopefully we'll get the answer because there are therapies that are specifically, in the, and we just had a, a, uh, an example uh, on Saturday of a, of a PCSK9 uh, siRNA uh, presented Olipasarin that gives 90% lowering in LPA. I mean, it's just astounding what, we have, astounding what we have available. So for some patients, if it proves that it works independently, then that would be something we can, uh, we can offer. But right now, it's a risk-enhancing factor, maybe makes you want to lower LDL as much as possible. Of course, the PCSK9 um, inhibitors do lower LPA 20% or so, 25%. It's a little bit of a help, maybe incremental benefit, we don't know for sure. 
But that's the only thing that really effectively lowers it. Niacin can do it, but we don't use niacin because of adverse events uh, outweigh the benefits. So I would add a couple of thoughts to that because uh, I was a cardiac intensivist for two decades before uh, uh, moving away from that part of cardiology. Lipoprotein A elevates uh, PI-1, which makes you more prothrombotic. Uh, and uh, so I think you need to consider dual, an dual antiplatelet therapy in patients who have really high lipoprotein A levels because they're going to have more thrombotic events, right? And I also tend to use ACE inhibitors over ARBs because ACE inhibitors lower PI-1, which is how they have provide such a great reduction in recurrent myocardial infarction. If you look back at the uh, uh, CARE, CARE trial, I think, and others, uh, Mark Pfeffer pointed out to me many years ago that uh, PI-1 is the mechanism, and so lipoprotein A modulates that. So I put them on ACE inhibitors if they have a hypertension to counter that. I think now you get a double benefit from any of the PCSK9 therapies, whether it's evolocumab, alirocumab, or glycerin, because they all lower lipoprotein A and take LDL to extremely low levels, and that's really the winning combination right now, I think, is to use a PCSK9 drug. Yeah, and the question is, should you measure LP little a in everybody once in their life? Well, yeah, it's genetically determined, and it rarely changes. It's never going to change. So at some point, we'll get there, only if we have a documented way to I suspect it's on, going to be added to the lipid profile eventually. I, I, I think so. I, I really think so. Um, one of the other questions that, uh, that, that came out about, um, uh, <laughs> I brought it up about uh, uh, icosapentethyl, was um, does anybody really ever use it under, under what circumstances? And I think, yes, for severe hypertriglyceridemia, it's indicated for that to, to prevent pancreatitis. The question is, do you just give it to everybody on maximally tolerated statin regardless of their LDL? Um, I don't know. It's not easy to take. It's, it's four capsules a day, and it's not inexpensive. So it's a, it's a shared decision-making. There is outcomes benefit, but I don't think we would uh, do it in place of, for instance, like our patient Ann, where, oh, she couldn't tolerate a statin, I'll just give her IPE, you know, instead. Uh, I'm not sure that's what the REDUCE IT trial showed us. <laughs> it wasn't in statin intolerant patients. It was on maximally tolerated statin with an LDL 70. So, um, you know, I, I who were post MI, yeah, and that's that's tend to where I restricted you. You just have to be you just have to be patient. careful about uh, about how you uh, you use that. Um, I think there was a, a question about genetic testing for FH, like in uh, in in my patient. Um, uh, isn't a physical exam enough? Well, actually, there is the Brian, uh, Simon Broom and the Dutch Olympic Clinic network that uh, you can just do physical exam looking for for. Uh, uh, tendon xanthomas, the level of their LDL cholesterol and family history, and you can get a definite um, uh, history. Well, yeah, um, but the monogenetics causes is important not just for the patient because of lifetime exposure of LDL from the, from the moment they were born, but it's also important for cascade screening. I mean, there can be family members who could inherit the same monogenetic gene but not get xanthomas, and they may not have them early in, in, in life. And so knowing... With genetic testing, it may influence your decision to do uh, uh, cascade screening. But I do think it's reasonable to, to do, and if you're fortunate enough to find a single gene, great. Most patients are not going to be just single genes. Some of them actually are, the higher the LDL, the more likely they are, they are uh, what's called compound heterozygotes. They have a couple of genes, and that causes their LDL to be 300 or 400 instead of 200. And then, of course, the homozygotes are pretty clear because they come in at over 500 anyway but you might want to know why they're a homozygote. So uh, genetic testing can sometimes help. Um, we're about running out of, out of time. There was one other um, question oh. about um, 
do you um, use any uh, supplements to help lower LDL? Phytosterols or anything else, do you think that those are helpful in some patients aside from a healthy diet, uh, high fiber or so forth diets? Do you use any supplements? I, I don't recommend them. I say to patients, it's your money in your life. You can choose to spend your money on, on the, those if you wish, but I don't endorse them and, uh, and don't recommend them. I think uh, there's, there's a lot of, you know, we, we see a lot of challenges in our patient population of people taking all kinds of supplements who have minor coagulopathies and other things from uh, the off-target effects of the supplements. And uh, uh, I just don't routinely recommend them and I discourage them, but it's, you're up, it's fighting an uphill battle. So I, I, you know, I can't win that. Well, sometimes that's for the statin intolerant patients. They're looking for other things too, to help lower their LDL and they'll go to the stuff. And I think here at the uh, AHA meeting, I think again, it was presented on Saturday. They were looking at supplements uh, and their effects on LDL cholesterol. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, very little effect of any of the supplements they looked at. Even red yeast rice only lowered uh, LDL about 10 or 15% uh, uh, with an over-the-counter red yeast rice. So, you know, the bottom line is, um, Work with your statin intolerant patient as much as you can with approved and established medications, including attempts at taking statins. And I know some of you have probably done once a week statins, Monday, Wednesday, Friday statins, whatever you can get a patient to tolerate, that's a good start. And then you move on with shared decision making on your other therapies to get their LDL as low as possible. Yeah, we recommend, you know, starting at Resuvastatin 5 if you have statin intolerance once a week and try to work up to two to three times a week. Correct. It's amazing how much LDL you can lower with a single dose of Resuvastatin on Mondays. It's amazing. It is. Well, it's been a great audience. Great question. It has. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EPX 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.